Hello, and welcome back to Water, Water Everywhere, the podcast that will not stop talking about water. I'm your host, Carly Vinghouse, and today we have a special guest. Her name is Christina Morissette, and she is an interdisciplinary water resource management scientist and a PhD candidate. So dive in and let's get wet. Hi, Christina. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me today. I am so excited to have our listeners learn about what you do and what you study. Um, So first of all, how are you doing? Um, I'm a little sore. I just joined a boxing gym. Oh my gosh. It's like next level workout. (laughs) Is it like um, one of those like membership boxing gyms where... um, I used to go to one called I love kickboxing and it was brutal. <laughs> yep. It's like, a, yeah, it's called legends here in Logan and yeah, it's like group workouts on bags and then doing some cardio. So awesome. And you're in Logan, Utah. I am. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So I think that by now my listeners know that our co-host Lila is out at sea and oddly enough, you have done the same program that she's currently in. I did. <laughs> and even weirder, I haven't been able to talk to her since like the beginning of November. And she just today got service randomly for like five minutes. And I told her that you were coming on and she was like, oh my God, what's her class number? So <laughs> what is I, your class number? S247. S247. Okay. I'm going to tell her that. And I probably won't be able to talk to her for like another month, but right. (laughs) That's okay. That's so cool. I can't believe. So what were you doing, um, in that program? I'm not sure if, if we want to say the name or if you care or not. Um, Um, so, uh, I went to undergrad at Stanford and every other year, uh, they charter out, um, a boat and a program with C semester, uh, out of Woods Hole. And uh, so for my program, we sailed, it was all Stanford students, and we sailed from Honolulu to Palmyra Atoll to Fanning Island, Christmas Island, and then back up to Honolulu. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, you went to Stanford? Yes. Yep. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I, you are so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Like a whole lifetime ago, but yeah. That's so awesome. What, wait, what did you study at Stanford? Ocean systems. Ocean systems. Okay. And, and then did you go on to get your master's and then P and now you're doing your PhD or what's the timeline there? Yeah. So, um, I did my, my bachelor's at Stanford graduated in 2015. Uh, from there, I, uh, kind of decided like, how do you know what you want to do unless you really know what you really don't want to do? So Mm -hmm. I decided, because I was really interested in fisheries, so I went and got a 10-week internship after I graduated uh, doing, like, water resource management, recreational freshwater fisheries work, Um, and that really solidified my fisheries interest, and so I went off and got a a master's at the University of Washington in fisheries, and while I was gone, my boss got in touch and said, 
um, my boss from my, my job in Idaho got in touch and said, Hey, we have money in a PhD project. If you want to come back. And despite having zero interest in a PhD, uh, I saw the project and was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That is so cool. I just love that. Like you had no intention on doing that. And that just kind of got, isn't that how life works? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. There was, there was an open door. So I took it. Right. Where are you from originally? I am from coastal Alaska. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Really, okay. Really tell us happen. about that. Yeah. Um, so my dad was a fish and wildlife trooper. So I lived in smaller and smaller coastal commercial fishing towns in Alaska. I lived in Anchorage, Kodiak Island, Dutch Harbor out on the Aleutian chain, and then spent middle and high school in a town called Cordova. Wow. Okay. What's it like growing up in Alaska? I guess like socially. Yeah. Um, so I grew up off the road system, so you can only get to where I lived by boat or by plane. And so socially, um, it created these really like small knit communities and tight knit communities that I really enjoyed. Um, like you're not anonymous. People know who you are, mm-hmm. um, which I always joked, right? Like having my dad as a police officer and my mom as a lunch lady, like they knew when I was in trouble before I even got home. Oh, no. <laughs> But um, it, it made it so like, you know, I could be on the basketball team. I wasn't very good, but I got to be on the basketball team because it wasn't. <laughs> and I got to travel around, around Alaska playing sports and doing student government. And so um, even though I was growing up in small town, Alaska, I was being able to travel and get to know the state as a whole. Wow. Okay. So you, you're not shy about the cold. You're, you're okay <sighs> with that. <laughs> I mean, I've never been a fan of snow, but like as a hydrologist, snow is a very important part of our snowpack and like about water, which is something that my husband constantly reminds me whenever I complain about snow. Um, he's like, Christina, you're a hydrologist. Yes. So, um, (laughs) I mean, snow, I couldn't imagine myself living somewhere that doesn't have snow. Um, but I'm not the biggest fan of it. Okay. Totally. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm from Las Vegas. Um, I live in upstate New York now. This is my first winter. Um, and it like just really snowed substantially for the first time over the weekend or was it last week? I don't know, but it like, I was like, this, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's all melted now. And it was like 50 degrees today. Now we're getting like this weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm a little worried because I, you know, I work with water outside. So it's like, what is going to happen? Like, some people are like taking augers out and drilling through the actual like ice pack to get to the water. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that, but to go ice fishing. No, to, to measure stream flow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm not looking forward to that, but on the winter note, I see you're wearing, um, a really cool sweater. Yes. So yes. my husband actually collects Christmas sweaters. And uh, he's in the field. He's a wildlife biologist and and a PhD student. And he's in the field in California right now. And he usually wears a different Christmas sweater for every day of December leading up to Christmas. (laughs) Um, But since he's in the field chasing cougars and not able to do that, I figured that I would keep up the tradition. (laughs) And for the listeners, it is a Christmas tree with a panda next to presents. And I might screenshot that and share that if that's okay with you, because it's so cute. (laughs) I'm wearing... This is my only holiday thing. It says I slay all day as in like a sleigh ride. And it's, it's a Beyonce sweatshirt. (laughs) It's the only Christmas thing I have. (laughs) 
Oh, that's so cute. Okay. So how did you end up in Logan, Utah then? Yeah. So when Henry Spark Foundation reached out saying they had money in a project, they had some stipulations. They wanted to make sure that I did my PhD within like a half day's drive of Ashton, Idaho. So that left me with um, Montana State in Bozeman, Idaho State in Pocatello, Idaho, or uh, Utah State in Logan, Utah. Um, okay. Those are about a three days, a three hour drive. Um, and Utah State had the best watershed sciences program um, that was relevant to the project that was being hired on for. Oh, very cool. And Logan is kind of by Salt Lake, right? Yeah, it's an hour, it's an hour and a half north of Salt Lake. Okay. Wow, super cool. Um, so tell us a little more about Henry's Fork Foundation. That's who you are doing your research with and for? Yes. Yeah. So that's a little okay. unusual um, in terms of a PhD. Normally, you know, like a, a professor hires you to do a project. But for me, I was hired on, I was kind of like recruited by this organization and they're paying for me to get my PhD at Utah State. Um, but the Henry Spark Foundation is a science-based collaborate, collaborative watershed conservation organization um, whose sole mission it is to protect the wildlife, the fisheries, and the aesthetics of our watershed in eastern Idaho. Um, and so we have a fundraising team, and then we also have a science team. And we do all kinds of work from the South Fork of the Snake River, which is, is really new for our program. Um, and we've been working on the Henry's Fork for about 35 plus years. And uh, looking at, it really start, start, started off pretty fish-centric, and now uh, a lot of the work that we do looks at water resource management. Okay. And that's where you're coming in. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very cool. What's like a day-to-day -day for you? Like, like maybe both, um, like in front of a computer and in the field, if you do both. Yeah. So it kind of depends, um, on the time of the year. So as a research scientist, I get to see the entire research cycle through. So that means, um, coming up with an idea. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that might, like, that's kind of like a fall spring type type conversation and then putting together um, a proposal to either the federal government, a state agency, to um, kind of local partners to fund that project. Um, and then in the summers doing data collection, uh, mentoring interns and in terms of data collection that might look like um, for the past few summers it's, it's meant about once or twice a week floating down river on a raft. Um, and doing flow measurements using this kind of sonar device. Um, you, is it an ADCP or a, an okay. ADCP? Yep. Yeah. Um, which was kind of terrifying when I was given this like $30,000 piece of equipment and it was brand oh, new. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I mean, think I had to sign something. <laughs> I did it and it belonged to us. It belonged to like a partner and they were like, this is what you're going to use all summer. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. Um, but um, and so, yeah, it's like on the river, um, either it could be talking with folks, it could be just floating down river, taking flow measurements. Um, mm -hmm. and then in the winter, sitting at a computer, analyzing that data, managing that data, um, writing up the analysis and also attending conferences, either, you know, like larger professional scientific societies or, presenting just in the watershed to local stakeholders on kind of the progress and what we're learning and um, what the work that I've been doing. Very cool. And I quickly just want to tell the listener what an ADCP is, because I know 
that's not a normal word um, or acronym. It's an acoustic Doppler um, current profiler. It's basically able to help us measure velocity based on particles in the water by how fast they're going. And then with that, we can say how much water, how fast it's going basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. And okay. Now I kind of want to talk about your actual PhD research. Cause I know you told me you're, you have like four questions that you're right. looking to answer. Yeah, so broadly, um, for my PhD, I think about how can we manage water in a way that works for farms, fish, and the fishing experience. So specifically in the case study um, perspective of the Henry's Fork watershed in eastern Idaho. Um, And to do that, to answer that big, broad question, I kind of think about four other questions, smaller questions, um, which I mean, each question is still like a year and a half of my life. But um, so, uh, so the first question is, what is the relationship between stream flow and aquatic habitat? Um, And the reason I'm asking that question is because in the summers during irrigation season, when, you know, agricultural irrigators are taking water out of the river to irrigate their crops, we're trying to think about, well, how much water should we leave in the river for fish and for overall aquatic habitat and ecosystem health? Um, And in the past, it's kind of just been like a best guess estimate. Look at the river. Maybe it's a thousand CFS um, CFS being uh, cubic feet per second. And, but so now I've, I'm hired to actually go out there and make those measurements and figure out, okay, what should the low flow target be? How low can we go? How low is too low? And what do we lose when we go too low? And so kind of quantifying all of that. Um, really quick, the Henry's fork, what kind of stretch of river is it is, and from, I guess, from headwaters to, to mouth, like, yeah, what, what is it? So the Henry's Fork is the North Fork of the Snake River, which uh, okay. when the North Fork and the South Fork of the Snake River meet, becomes the South, it becomes the Snake River, which ends up going out to um, the, the Columbia River and going out to the ocean in between Washington and Oregon. Um, Got it. The headwaters of the Henry's Fork specifically, we are um, just south of Yellowstone National Park at the West Yellowstone entrance. And um, there are two major reservoirs. And then, so it's, it's on this kind of caldera reach. So kind of the remnant of an old volcano. Um, it's pretty, and so we have those two reservoirs um, and we have a lot of groundwater springs that come up and that's where we get our base flow from um, on that, in that part of the watershed. Uh, so it's a lot of flat water. Um, and then it goes over Mesa Falls, um, a, a major waterfall. And then it goes into this agricultural land in the lower part of the watershed where, um, we have irrigation diversions and okay. Yeah. So maybe not super turbid and with rock ripples and no. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So, and that'll change obviously the type of aquatic habitat that you're looking at, like trying to understand the relationship with. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what, what kind of aquatic habitat are you looking at? Yep. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, but thinking about it and just in the context of fish, um, because we still, the area of the watershed I work in, it's really special because it still has these cottonwood uh, forests, um, cottonwood trees, um, but those trees really rely on flood, flood plain connection in the spring. And we have that in the spring. I'm looking at specifically the summer low flow period. And so I'm okay. looking at that in the context of brown trout. So looking at the depth and velocity that brown trout need when they're spawning in the fall, when they're adults and juveniles in the summer. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. Oh, you're totally fine. 
<laughs> okay. And then for the, I know for your next one that you're, so for these questions, you are doing it, you said like a year at a, and a half at a time. Well, so my PhD is um, a five-year project. And oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last half of my 20s. <laughs> I will hopefully like defend on my 30th birthday. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, I'm, I'm trying and think about them as like a dedicated year and a half effort. But in reality, um, I've been doing the stream flow habitat and the groundwater component kind of at the same time. That makes sense. So yeah, let's talk about the groundwater component. Yeah. So the second question of my research kind of looks at what is the contribution of groundwater to the system. So the, the lower part of the Henry's Fork watershed sits on, on top of and is adjacent to the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer. Um, so an aquifer is like an underground reservoir. And uh, this aquifer was created because of the Yellowstone hotspot moving through Southern Idaho um, over the course of, you know, <laughs> thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And um, this aquifer is like lava rock and it's unconfined. So that means that like water can like move in and out of it uh, pretty easily. And so we know that groundwater is putting water into the river and we're, we're trying to figure out how much groundwater is coming into the river when, and what is the quality of that groundwater? The idea being that during that summer low flow period, that's really constraining aquatic habitat for fish. How can we leverage this groundwater connection? Um, so something that we think about a lot is managed aquifer recharge, which is putting water out onto the land intentionally, either in gravel pits or in, um, kind of like these sand dune lakes or in canals or on kind of undeveloped agricultural fields and letting that water disperse out onto the land and then infiltrate down into the aquifer. And then we know that that water in a sense comes back to the river within three months. Um, and so if we can put water onto the land in April, then we can get that water back in the summertime when we, we really need it. Um, so I'm trying to figure out how much water is coming in. Um, and we've learned so far that the temperature of that water is super, super cold compared to the river itself in the summertime. So okay. um, what we learned in 2019 was some field work with an intern uh, that the water coming in is 57 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas the river itself is like seven degrees warmer, like 65 degrees, and which is like kind of a higher tolerance for brown trout. And so this groundwater gain, this groundwater input to the system uh, can be providing kind of like cold water refuge for brown trout during that summer low flow, hotter water temperature period. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. And what I also wanted to ask you is so aquifer recharge versus aquifer storage re yes. and recovery. What, okay. what are you, yeah. Which one are you doing? Yes. Um, so in Idaho, we are recharging the aquifer. So we're putting water into the aquifer, uh, okay. knowing that, that it will be stored in a sense for, uh, in my section, in my part of the watershed, it'll be stored for about three months and then it'll go back into the system. Okay. Okay. Got it. And then, so what, what is the difference between the two? Um, so aquifer recharge versus aquifer storage and recovery. So recovery. aquifer recharge is like you're storing and recharging. And then the ASR is just storage. Yes. Yeah, so later? Okay. 
Recharge is putting water into the aquifer to use the aquifer as a storage mechanism. Oh, um, yes. Sorry. So, Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, like in a surface water sense, we have dams that have reservoirs behind them and we put water into those reservoirs and we kind of hold it back until we need it downstream at a different time. It's the same kind of idea, but in a groundwater sense. So using our, our underground reservoir. Got it. Okay. 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 I see. And what, what's your method of doing that exactly? Yeah. Um, so in Idaho, the way that, um, they're doing it is, uh, putting what so using the canal infrastructure that we already have for agriculture. And so on the shoulder seasons of agriculture in the spring and in the fall, when there's uh, water in the system that is allocated for recharge specifically, then we put that water into those canals and those canals are often unlined. And so a lot of that water just comes out of those canals and it goes into the aquifer directly. And then we also have um, specific recharge sites that those canals direct water to. And so that, that site can be like a gravel pit. It can be um, in my part of the, uh, of the world, it's called the Egen Lakes and it's this lake system um, right by a sand dune. And so you just kind of flood that and let the water infiltrate down to the aquifer on its own. Okay. Very cool. Okay. That's so interesting that you're actually a part of that. I feel like, like that is something that's going to, I don't know. Do you feel like that is something that is widely used like for um, like drinking water purposes in a sense? Oh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, aquifer recharge is something that's used around the world um, in different uh, modes. And so I know like in India and in, even in like Arizona, um, they're using different methods of putting water into the ground. Um, some of that can be for like water quality purposes as a way to kind of recover um, water and use the natural infiltration process to kind of pull out pollutants. Um, but it is in the ecology conservation world, managed aquifer recharge, the idea of taking water when we have it, putting it in the ground so it can come back later in the season when we need it, when water is super low. That's something that we're still struggling to get funded. Um, it's kind of counterintuitive to some folks. Um, and so um, definitely something that we're trying to talk about more and show that it can be beneficial. Right. Because I mean, the biggest worry is like, yes, we do have water, but when we're removing water from these aquifers at such a fast rate, it cannot recharge naturally, which I don't know if people are aware, but aquifers do replenish nat naturally if the water is leaving at a normal rate, but at which we are taking it for drinking water purposes, it's not. Yes, definitely. And, and in the Henry's Fork, um, we aren't pulling water out um, intentionally, except for like, there's, they are, there is groundwater pumping that's done for irrigation. Um, but in my sure. context, um, I'm just looking at the groundwater that's coming back into the system. Got it. Okay. Okay. And then you for your next question. Also very interesting. Go ahead. I will not take your thunder. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So my next question um, is looking at how can we manage Island Park Reservoir, one of the reservoirs at the top in the headwaters of the system. How can we manage that reservoir in a way that works for the most interests and the most people? Um, and thinking about so this reservoir is an irrigation storage reservoir. Irrigators have the power if they're calling for water and they have the right to that water. That water gets sent downstream. Um, but then that means that fisheries interest. Um, 
they are secondary. Hydroelectric power interests at that dam are also secondary. Um, and so I'm working on, with stakeholders, building a model for this reservoir, for this dam operation. So when we say, okay, this is the, the prediction of water coming into the system. This is how much irrigators need downstream. Um, how can we operate? The, but, but then also, right, like, this is what fisheries folks need. This is what, what the hydroelectric folks need. What do we need to do to be able to make all of those things work? And if we aren't able to make all those things work, which is, you know, probable, um, like being able to actually quantify by how much. Um, and so people can kind of negotiate um, amongst themselves for getting the water that they need where and when. Right. Having their like piece of the pie, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Or do people recreate there? Yes. Yeah. The Henry's Fork, uh, I said that at the very beginning, that the Henry's Fork is <laughs> a world renowned uh, fly fishing destination. Oh, do you, so, do you fish? <laughs> I do. I didn't know how to fly fish before uh, joining the Henry's Fork Foundation. Um, but that is something that I have since learned. Um, and so when people ask if the Henry's Fork Foundation is, or the Henry's Fork watershed is good fly fishing, I'm like, this is the only place I've really ever fly fished and it's supposedly world renowned. So like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm like being from Las Vegas, it's world, like Red Rock is world renowned for mountain climbers for, for, um, yeah, mountain sport climbing. I don't know Mm -hmm. the difference. Um, and people ask me and I'm like, I don't know. I can't answer that. I don't know if <laughs> that have not been, <laughs> but so I guess, well, God, I'm trying to think of a reservoir where like irrigation isn't the boss, you know, like where right. that water isn't already mostly reserved for agriculture. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Like, I how do we... I feel like I don't know. Of, the, of the dams in most of the dams, actually, in the Columbia River hydro system in like Washington, um, those dams were built for hydropower. OK. Yeah, that's something I wanted to touch on with you. Because um, I've always so globally, 70 percent of available freshwater is used for agriculture. But um, in the United States, I just found out that and this, this was an estimate from, from the University of Michigan in 2015. They said that irrigation accounted for 36.7%, while thermoelectric accounted for 41.3% of available freshwater, which okay. I was kind of surprised by. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense to you? Um, I suppose. I guess I'm not. That's something that I'm still not super great at is thinking more kind of globally and at a national level as well. I'm definitely a place-based scientist. And so I, I get stuck right. in, my, in my bubble. <laughs> sure. Sure. No. Yeah. I just thought that I hadn't, I was not aware of that until earlier today, honestly, when I was like doing research, I was like, wait, really? So yeah, that's just something to think about. Cause I always thought agriculture was number one, mm-hmm. um, but I guess not it was close second though. Um, anyways, <laughs> well, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in, in dams and kind of dam building, have you read a Cadillac desert? Oh, that's been on my to read list forever. Okay. But now that you just mentioned it, and I'm also gonna, um, for the listeners, I'm going to be sharing a lot of links on the website. So I'm going to add that to it. 
Cadillac Desert. Is that what you just mm-hmm. said? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it covers like the history of dam building in the United States, um, which has been, which is, is really interesting. And it, it talks about kind of the, the Bureau the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Mm-hmm. Army Corps of Engineers and the roles that those two federal agencies played in building all these dams. Yeah, and then now lots of undoing that. Does it talk about that at all? Like, no, I think dam removal and I I think this book was written towards the end of the eighties, early nineties, and so okay. it predates um, the era of dam removal. Gotcha. Okay, and then let's talk about your final question. Yep. Um, so, right, uh, my third question. I'm building this model alongside stakeholders, um, which is important to me because I want to make sure that there's buy-in. I don't just want to like create this model at my desk in Utah and show up and be like, "Boom, there you go, Idaho." Or <laughs> use it. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I want people to, to to feel empowered by this product. And so, um, and I really, and something I really value about the Henry Spork watershed and the way that water management works is that it's really collaborative. And so something I'm studying, I'm hoping to study as a part of my PhD. Um, we'll see if the data is there, but is what makes collaboration work and not work. Um, and so as I build this model collaboratively with stakeholders, I'm not only building the model, but I'm also studying how the collaboration process is working, um, amongst the stakeholders. Have you come across situations where um, like collaborators don't always take into account scientific findings or maybe they use them out of context for their own agenda? Like um, stuff like that? Not, not in, in our watershed. So the Henry Spark mm-hmm. Foundation, because we're a science-based organization and we've been working with these same people for the past 35 years, um, we are a trusted science producing entity. Um, and so at least in the last five years, specifically folks have been really on board and trust whatever science we we bring to the table. Okay. Okay. That is really great (laughs) because I hear about that happening a lot. Um, or I've seen that happen a couple of times, (laughs) but yeah, I just like, that's, I guess that's what scares me about, um, collaborating with people outside of the scientific community especially like, I don't know, you, especially now in this climate when it's like politically speaking, taking scientific findings out of context for your own gain is so damaging. Right. I think that also requires people to have the capacity to be able to seek out that scientific information and use it for their own, um, for their own purposes and agenda. Uh, but in, in our watershed, uh, I think we've developed enough trust that folks, I guess just expect us to come with the science. So there is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. So more like on a larger scale, um, do you ever like think about like freshwater as a resource in, in the future, especially out West and like where it's headed to and like what we can do? Cause there's so many, so many issues surrounding that topic. Right. Um, so do your listeners know about prior appropriations and like how the way that, okay. Mm -mm. So, um, so prior appropriations is the way that water is managed out West, uh, where, um, water is seen as kind of this scarce commodity, um, scarce resource. And so prior appropriations means first in time, first in right. So the first person to divert water from a particular source 
and put it to a beneficial use, they have the priority. Um, that's really definitely in like the settler context of European of European settlers coming out and colonizing the West. Um, mm-hmm. And so then that water is tied or that water right is tied to property. And so having that um, tract of farmland, um, some of these farmlands right have like water rights dating back to like 18 something. Um, and then folks who put water out, um, who took take water later, like maybe like 1920s, they are junior to those more senior water rights holders. And so um, they don't, they, what's the way, like if, if everyone's standing in line at like a lunch counter and they, and the 1920s folks come to, to the counter and they're like, I'd like some water, please. It's like, well, you're not in priority. We don't have any water left. Um, so I think in thinking about the future of water in the West and thinking about water scarcity, it's, it's also important to think about water scarcity for who, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, who is experiencing water scarcity? Is it water scarcity for environmental purposes? Is it water scarcity for municipalities and cities? Um, because a lot of, in, in, because in the West, um, we're using water mostly for irrigated agriculture. Um, and so some folks think that we just need to totally overhaul the way that we uh, manage water and just kind of redo that water law approach um, and reallocate water more equitably across users in, in a way that, because right, it's it's always in the context of irrigated ag- agriculture, but other uses like in-stream, just environmental uses, um, cities, they have needs as well, but they're kind of lower in priority. Um, and other people think that we just need to, to start developing new water, new water sources. So let's build more dams, let's capture more water, let's harvest rainwater. Um, other people think that we need to just decrease water demand. And so really, really limit the amount of water that irrigators can pull out. Um, and other people think that we should um, like increase our irrigation efficiency, uh, which is, it makes, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Where if we can have these super efficient sprinklers putting water on, on the ground, um, so then we only take as much as we need uh, theoretically, then we're, we would use less water, uh, but that's actually not a solution because we've show, it's, it's called the irrigation efficiency paradox. And um, the more efficient you are at putting water, if you just give the plant just as much as it needs, but you still have you know, several gallons left, you're, you're just gonna take that water and apply it somewhere else. Um, that water doesn't end up staying in the river. Um, and, oh, sorry, I got off topic there. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> um, but, and so I'm trying to think about what is the future of water in the West? I think coming from a very local and regional perspective and coming mm-hmm. from an NGO perspective, like we don't have the resources to be able to take on like a large scale water law reform. For sure. Uh, that's like decades long, multi-million dollar uh, effort. And so something that we just really focus on is what can we do in our watershed since that is our mission. Um, and we're really just trying to work within the bounds of the current water law structure. Um, and for us, that means collaborating with irrigators um, because at the end of the day, they have the power um, and we don't, we we're just an NGO. Um, we have, you know, data, um, we have science, but we can't say how much water is stored behind the dam or how much water is sent downstream. Uh, so for us, it's about 
collaborating with irrigators as opposed to kind of the traditional like farms versus fish, um, mm-hmm. it's more farms and, and fish. And so we, we see that as kind of a more productive use of our time and resources. And of course, like that, that's not going to work for every watershed. Maybe it is more beneficial to try and overhaul the prior appropriation water law structure. Um, but that's just not what's going to work for us. Right. I mean, I was just thinking that when you said that you, I mean, everywhere is so different. And so it's like taking all the things you mentioned, combining them, or maybe just applying one or two things and like thinking like in the desert, the issues are going to be so much different than they are in Idaho. Right. So just, yeah, you're right. Just because their water, water rights, water law, like that would honestly solve a, a few issues in the desert, but, <laughs> but yeah, maybe not where you are. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you think like on an individual level, person to person, do you, do you think anyone can do something like people that, you know, maybe they recreate or they're out in water a lot, they fish, whatever, like, or even reduce their, their usage to avoid scarcity. Is that realistic at all? Or is this like, this is out of our hands. Like this is such a much, a much larger issue. Right. So I took, um, a water law and policy class in Utah at USU my first year. And, uh, we learned that culinary water. So like domestic water use in your household, like it's just nothing compared to the amount of water that's used in an agricultural context. Mm -hmm. Um, So even, you know, there are of course, small things that that we can like technically do, right. Like turning off our our faucet when when, when we brush our teeth and whatnot, but that's just doesn't compare to the industrial use of water, um, at a larger state scale. Um, and so I don't want to sound like doom and gloom. I've been told I'm not the most optimistic person, but (laughs) I feel like, uh, being aware of where, of where your water is coming from can be really helpful. And, and when you're recreating, understanding, you know, is this reservoir, like, what is this reservoir used for? Um, and so just kind of becoming more connected with your water, I think can be helpful. Um, and of course, donating to causes, to campaigns, to organizations um, that are thinking about how to handle this water issue at a much larger scale. For sure. And if you are curious about where your water comes from, go back and listen to episode one. Should I drink my tap water where I tell you how to find out where your water comes from, Awesome. (laughs) but no, definitely like that. And a lot of our water in most households, like that water kind of goes back to the water treatment plant and, and is kind of accounted for and recycled in a way. Yeah. There's losses, but for the most part, there's not much you can do at, at home. I'd say like reducing your shower really isn't going to, I mean, do much, unfortunately, but, but that's a good point that you make. Are there any uh, about like donating and stuff? Are there any, um, nonprofits or organizations that you could recommend people to that you personally like to donate to? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and if not, you could get back to me and I could share that with the listeners later. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I personally don't, um, I think because I already work in this realm. <laughs> um, right. You're like I'm doing enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I think, I think oftentimes when people think about, um, people outside of our professions, they might, 
when they think about water, they think about drinking water. And then they think about like, I feel like villages in Africa that don't have access to clean mm-hmm. water. And like, that seems to be the full extent of it. And there are great organizations that you can donate to for that. Like charity, charity water is a good one, but I am going to, if you want later, let me know if you think of any, and then I'm going to try to also compile a list of um, organizations in the United States that maybe we can get people to donate to. Sure. Okay. One of my last like broader water resources questions for you, since you know so much Um, rapid population growth, clearly not conducive to sustainable water management. Uh, We kind of already touched on that, but like, what, like, what do we do about that? Right. Um, so that's something that was brought up in the, in the Utah context, because Utah's population is growing so much. And it was like, well, how does that relate to water? Um, in the Utah context, that's popular. Talking about water conservation in relation to population growth is a non-starter, um, just because mm-hmm. population growth is so tied to, to the local religion and culture. Um, but I think, I mean, if we look to, to Los Angeles, right, like their population keeps growing, but their water usage hasn't, I think. And so um, really, yeah, they've just been really good at like making it work. Um, oh. and so, I mean, we, we can double check that, but I'm pretty no, sure. No, no. I, I believe you. That's very interesting though. Um, and so, yeah, I think we as humans, I mean, I don't want to rely on like engineered solutions too much, but um, I think in the public water utility context, we have shown that we're able to make it work um, despite a growing population. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely interested in learning about how that happened in LA um, because their water comes from Lake Mead for the most part. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, I, I definitely believe it because agriculture is the number one user of Lake Mead. Um, and they reached like record lows this summer. And so people, you know, people are naturally panicking about their drinking water source. And I think they predict by like 20, so 2030 or 2050, it's what I'll, I'll look, <laughs> I, I say things and I, I can't back it up. And that's no, my problem. Yeah. 2030 or 2050. It's a huge difference, but by then they expect to run out of water. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely an interesting topic. Well, I think also um, the idea of recycling water, like, because, right, like, we're putting drinking water in our toilets. Like, we yeah. don't need that level of, like, we can be doing more to recycle water. And I think they, they're doing a lot of that work in Arizona and I think also Australia um, and thinking about, but it's, of course, people are like, ew, like recycled water. And I think we can just like reimagine what water can be. Um, no. That's what, like, I did an internship in Israel on, like, a commune, for lack of a better word, um, called a kibbutz, but kind of like a shared space, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's but all of the water was is recycled. So we have gray water systems. And that in that sense, you do actually have to be careful about, like, um, like, you can't put food down the drain. You can't, like, you can't shower for too long. Like, you you know, but that that is a solution for the desert. Definitely. Um, but are you wondering, like, is this like clean and safe? Yeah. But You know, I think people are way too scared about water in general, drinking Mm -hmm. water. 
Well, and I actually, I have a friend in Arizona who his entire dissertation was on, um, I think I can't remember if it was Phoenix or Tucson, but they're putting recycled water into streams as a way mm-hmm. to like, still provide for aquatic ecosystems. Um, so that's another yeah. way people are thinking about how to use recycled water. For sure. And, and in that same vein in Israel, they were doing it for agriculture. They were, which again, then you wonder, okay, I'm growing this food with this recycled water, what's in it. Mm-hmm. That's something that they're studying. So not our problem. Yeah. I think that's actually something that they're doing in my little town of Ashton, Idaho, uh, wow. where the wastewater treatment plant, some of that water gets put out onto the agricultural fields near, nearby, which I think is mostly like grain for maybe livestock use. Um, mm. That's so cool. Wow. So people, there are solutions. Are we implementing all of them? Absolutely not. Will we? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So kind of wrapping up here. um, This is something I'm curious about as another female scientist. Mm -hmm. Have you faced challenges being a female in your field? Yeah. um, That was something I was wondering you were going to ask me about. That's something that I definitely, I've encountered like a a a few instances where I was like, was that person treating me differently because they're, because I'm a woman or are they just a socially awkward engineer? Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, but I think, so that's something that I do consider. And that's something, uh, when I'm working with stakeholders specifically, I'm, uh, I think about my positionality. And so positionality is something we're not really taught as natural resource professionals, but that's really more in in the social science realm, but positionality is about, how who you are, how how people perceive you and how you think people perceive you impact the work that you do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I'm entering into into these stakeholder spaces, I'm very aware that I am the only woman in the room, that I'm the youngest, um, that I'm someone who's only been in this part of the world for the past seven years. Um, I I didn't grow up there. I'm not part of the dominant religion. Um, And so that's something that I'm always thinking about. Uh, but so far I feel like I haven't had any negative experiences, um, as a woman in science, but that's something that I'm kind of like, my ears are always up, but I'm like waiting for it. Um, right. Yeah. Cause sometimes you don't know, you're like, is this, is this sexism? Is this just like someone like not realizing what they're saying or, or am I just thinking too much about it? Right. Right. I think sometimes it comes up in the field context, like working outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I was never taught, like, how do you manage to go to the bathroom in the woods or like managing a menstruation when you're on a boat all day. Um, And even (laughs) when I had like women interns and they're asking me those questions, I was like, I've never actually been formally taught, like had a conversation about how to manage. Like, I just don't drink water all day, (laughs) which like probably isn't. (laughs) I mean, on a boat. Yeah. Like, how do you? I have that problem every time I'm on a boat. I pee. So are you, wait, are you drinking a thermo flask? Yes. Mm-hmm. Me too. We've, we had a poll up earlier um, about, are you like a Nalgene person or like a hydro thermo flask person? So well, people, you heard it here first. Christina has a thermo flask. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I really don't like the wide mouth of a Nalgene. I, I need, I need a small opening. <laughs> yes. My, so I have both. I use both inter. I don't know. I lose one. I find one. I lose one. I find mm-hmm. one. So. <laughs> uh, 
That's amazing. Okay. Thank you for answering that with honesty. And lastly, I want to know what, what are your plans after, um, you have your PhD? What do you want to do? Yeah. So I graduate in a year and a half. Um, like whispers, I would like my boss's job when he retires. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, exactly. No, and and he already knows that. Um, my boss at the Henry Spark foundation has been a mentor to me for most of my twenties. And, um, I really like the way that he does science and I would like to be able, and, and I think in the Henry Spark watershed, watershed context, I think part of the reason we've been so successful in collaborating is because it's been the same four people for the last 30 years. And so thinking about uh, how do we make that persist into the future? And it's like, well, we kind of need these people to have apprentices who have seen how they work together and then who can walk into these roles. Um, and so ideally I would like to be my boss in 10 years. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I just wanna keep working with, um, with non-governmental organizations, thinking about water, managing water for multiple uses and uh, staying in the West, like Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, um, and being really place-based. Like I think sometimes, especially when you're working for a really big NGO or you're working for an agency at the state or federal level, you're kind of this person who manages things from really far away. Uh, But I really um, value this local approach where like people know you as like, you know, also the Girl Scout leader or the softball coach, or, you know, that mom who is like way too excited at basketball games. Uh, And so I want to like be a community member who is also a scientist uh, and working to uh, preserve and conserve the resource that these communities rely on. Absolutely. That's a phenomenal um, future goal to have, because really like we live in our communities and yes, we think about the world and like the United States at such a larger level that like we can't even comprehend and there's not a lot you can do about it. So I think, you know, worrying about your community is really like for your own sanity and happiness is the best. Definitely. (laughs) Um, Wow. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about everything you're doing and everything you want to do. I really enjoyed this. Um, So do you, do you run the Henry, Henry's Ford Foundation Instagram? No, um, the Henry's Ford Foundation Instagram is run by our communications director, Jamie Latch. Okay, okay, I was not sure. But do, should we ask the, the people to follow? Yeah, follow the Henry's Ford Foundation on Instagram. You can also go to our website, henryspork.org, and you'll be linked to all of our different so social media, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook from there. Awesome, thank you so much. Art, do you have any last words? Um, I guess you can also follow me like individually as like a researcher. Um, I'm on Twitter at H2O and fish and then on Instagram at lower Henry Spork. Um, and yeah, I would love to see more women in science, uh, more women in water. Uh, so Carly, thank you so much for hosting me today and for creating this podcast and this opportunity to be able to come and talk and represent women in water and, um, you know, 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Of course. And if you want to come back, we'd love to have you. I'm sure Lila would love to meet you and talk about sea semester. That could be a whole episode. So as always, uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of water, water everywhere. You can follow us on Instagram as well as Henry's fork foundation, as well as Christina at water dot water everywhere. And 
Look up links from this episode on our website at waterwatereverywherepod.com. And please don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, Stay wet, everyone. Bye.